Hello, and welcome to Profiles, the program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Jack Matlock, who spent 35 years as an American diplomat, concluding as the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1987 to 1991. Jack, welcome to Profiles. Glad to be with you. You got interested in Russia as an undergraduate at Duke in the late 1940s. What was the catalyst? There were several, uh, but probably the most important in many ways was literature. I read Dostoevsky and translation and got really bowled over with as literature. But at the same time, I was quite aware of the beginnings of the Cold War, of uh, the nuclear threat. Uh, at that time, I was a member of United World Federalists. We thought that the only way we could avoid a nuclear holocaust was through a world government. Uh, but, you know, and the more I learned about the Soviet Union, the more I realized this was not going to happen, and we had to deal with it the old-fashioned way by diplomacy. So on the one hand, my attraction for Russian literature and culture, uh, my recognition uh, that the big problem in my mind for my generation in foreign policy was dealing with the nuclear threat, which meant dealing with the Soviet Union, uh, made me decide to specialize in Russian studies and Soviet studies. It was broader than just Russia. Uh, and uh, to try to combine an academic with a diplomatic career. I started out teaching at Dartmouth and then went in the Foreign Service. The stories about your gift for language learning uh, have made the rounds of the Foreign Service. Um, a junior embassy official in Moscow told me once about accompanying you to the then Soviet Republic of Georgia, where you gave a speech. Afterwards, he went up to the podium to collect the papers, expecting to find some kind of transliteration, and was astounded to discover that your notes were actually in Georgian. Um, when and how did you discover this gift for languages? I'm not sure it's a gift. I, I was very much attracted by languages. You know, foreign languages is like a mystery. And, I, you know, if there was some reason, I wanted to uncover that mystery. In the case of Georgia, and I studied it entirely on my own, but the speech uh, had been translated by the Voice of America, and I would ask for them to do two tapes, one very slow and another at speech speed. And then several weekends before I went to Georgia, I would go out to our dacha, our vacation place in Moscow, and practice, you know, with the tapes. Uh, and uh, I also, at that time, uh, developed my own Georgian typeface for my computer. I had a dot matrix printer. There were no off-the-shelf Georgian things, so I got a program where you could design typefaces. So actually, that text they saw was printed out in a typeface I had designed. But this was simply a matter... Uh, the foreign languages fascinate me, and as I said, each of them I come in contact with presents sort of a challenge. Uh, you do, I just have a, a desire to figure out what it says, what it means. You must be good at puzzles too then. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't have much time for puzzles, but, <laughs> but I do enjoy them. <laughs> Another one of the things that you did um, that many people consider amazing was to index Stalin's uh, works. Uh, yes. Some people would say, why or wasn't that boring? 
it was not boring, uh, ex- to the, except to the degree that anything you have to read closely more than once uh, can achieve a certain monotony. Uh, no, there were several reasons. One was uh, I, that contract was let by the State Department external research division when Stalin was still alive. And the idea being that now that they were putting out his complete works in Russian, they did not normally have indexes. So the idea to index it uh, so we would have an easy reference uh, was one which they thought was very important. Now, before we completed it, uh, he died. But nevertheless, uh, one couldn't be sure how important or unimportant this was going to be. Certainly for historical reasons, it was important. So, and as far as myself personally, uh, they were paying me to do it. That paid for two of our children. <laughs> I, I was a poor academic who uh, started with a salary of 3600 a year. And so to have a contract to index a 13-volume set, uh, I mean, gosh, I could make nearly a dollar an hour at that. <laughs> Which was good wages in those days. <laughs> you're, 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 you had an MA from Columbia and a certificate from, um, I'm not, it's now called the Harriman Center. It's now the Harriman Institute, yes. Um, and then you went to teach it at Dartmouth. Did you see Dartmouth as just a waiting point until you could get into uh, the Foreign Service or had you not decided at that point? Well, I decided that I would really like to do both. Uh, it was not propitious time to enter the Foreign Service at that time. As a result of McCarthyism, uh, the Foreign Service didn't actually hire for two or three years, just at the time that I was uh, finishing graduate school. Uh, and I wasn't even sure at that time whether the atmosphere was one that I wanted to, uh, to join. Uh, but it was also clear to me then that it seemed the only way I could be sure that I would be able to live in the Soviet Union would be as a diplomat. Because in the Stalin period and for a year or two after, uh, there was no tourism. There were no students. We had diplomats and there was a handful of journalists who tended to be very senior journalists. And so, you know, we didn't know how long that would prevail uh, so if I was going to be able to actually live in and see the country I'd studied, well, it seemed to be the Foreign Service the best bet. You went to the Soviet Union the first time in 1961 um, when Khrushchev was the leader. What were your first impressions? The first impressions on visiting the Soviet Union after studying it for so long was that the system had reached a certain stability. Um, and uh, also, when I first uh, visited, it was uh, during the so-called thaw, when they began to loosen up somewhat. Uh, Khrushchev had given his secret speech criticizing Stalin, and during my first months there, uh, at the embassy, he gave his public speech. Uh, and so the year after that was an exciting one for one interested in Russian culture because suddenly uh, we began uh, to get a flood of literature, including Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of uh, Ivan Denisovich, uh, a recognition uh, of the uh, prison camps and whatnot, uh, and, and more of that literature coming out. And that lasted about a year until suddenly there was a crackdown again. So 
you know, I found that was a fairly exciting period to be there. And it was one where within the embassy, watching what happened on the cultural front was the most crucial thing we did because you could see that happening before so much had been very difficult to get at under the surface. And uh, I think that one of the things that made my career uh, eventually uh, was that our ambassador then recognized the importance of following what was happening in in the cultural field. And I was the one on the embassy best qualified to do so. There were a couple of interesting uh, things that, that happened to you during that first day. One of them, you apparently interviewed Lee Harvey Oswald. I was responsible for uh, dealing with his wife's visa application. Of course, that also meant dealing with him. Uh, He had actually tried to defect or had defected to the Soviet Union before I came. And my first job was as consular officer. Uh, And I dealt with immigrant cases. Uh, My colleague dealt with American citizen cases. So my colleague dealt with him. I dealt with his wife. Uh, but I did come in contact with him because uh, when we finally, out of a long period, de- the State Department determined he had not lost his citizenship, therefore he had all the rights of an American citizen to return, then the question was by that time he had a wife who was not a citizen and a baby who, since he was a citizen, was. And to make a very complicated story short, finally everything was approved. They were going to go, and she came to get her immigrant visa. Well, one of the questions uh, is uh, what organizations you have been affiliated with, and if you were voluntarily affiliated with a communist-nominated organization, that technically made you uh, ineligible to uh, for an immigrant visa. Uh, and she put denied on her application she had ever been a member of the Komsomol. Now, which I is knew the communist very, youth organization. I knew very well that she had to have been, and that would not have disqualified her uh, because it was involuntary. As I said, voluntary member. We considered it involuntary. But the, the interesting thing here is that when she came in with her application, he came in with her. And the baby. And I said, oh, it has to be a private interview. And he said, oh, she doesn't speak English. And I said, fine, she'll be interviewed in Russian. And he just sat there. And I asked him a second time to leave. Uh, And I said, you know, the baby can stay with her or you can take the baby, but this has to be a private interview. And he simply refused to leave. So I simply pulled down another file and started working on another case. And he sat a few minutes fuming. And uh, said, well, when are you going to interview her? And I said, when you leave the room. Now, his case was notorious with us, this former defector who now wanted to go back. Uh, and so my wife knew he was coming in, and she came down just to happen to, to, to get a glimpse of this character. And she saw him prance out of the office with the baby that was still swaddled on a board, throw it down almost on the thing, and then pace and it turns out later that she, he had told her to deny that she had been in the Komsomol because he thought that we might use that to keep her out. Now, I wrote on her application, I thought, well, you know, I better explain this. So I wrote on her formal application, 
I'm certain she must have been a member of the Komsomol, but I'm not excluding her because even if she was, uh, it would not exclude her from the United States uh, and assigned it. Later, this was used by the Warren Commission as evidence that the KGB was not behind his return to the United States because we had local employees in our consular section. They knew what our rules were. They would never have advised her if they were advising her coming back uh, to deny her Komsomol membership. So this is one of these ironic things. And uh, uh, let me add one thing since you brought this up. Obviously, it never crossed their mind this was a man who would go back and assassinate the president. I was in Ghana when the assassination occurred. We got word fairly early in the evening that the assassination had occurred, uh, and I was sent out to tell our political counselor and also to make preparations to open a condolence book. I get back home around midnight, and we turn on the Voice of America to find out what in the world happened. And already there was uh, an announcement that they had arrested a man with a Russian wife whose name was Lee Harvey Oswald. My wife turned to me and said, Jack, isn't that? And I said, my God, yes. And he could have done it. I have never doubted. He was a lone assassin. He was not the sort of person that any organization would try to use. He was just, you just sort of sensed it. So I've not been one who went into a lot of conspiracy theories on that one. Another big thing, an international event that you were involved with was the Cuban Missile Crisis Yes. as the translator. Were you, did you feel stressed or nervous about having such an important role? No, we were enjoying it, actually. <laughs> I wasn't at all nervous. By that time, I was pretty comfortable with my knowledge of Russian and, uh, uh, and, and certainly knowing the political terms that were, were used uh, in the correspondence. Uh, we were not at all worried about war. Um, maybe that was perhaps too calm uh, than the facts, uh, uh, as we later learned them, uh, justified. But the fact was, uh, we just wanted Kennedy to stand firm and get the damn things out. And as far as we were concerned, it didn't matter whether we bombed them or whether we did it in another way. I think we were wrong in retrospect uh, on that, uh, because uh, we've since learned to our consternation that actually uh, the officers in charge might have launched those missiles if they had come under attack. Apparently, Moscow didn't have complete control the way we would have had control over nuclear weapons. That's another story. But the fact is that we were very calm, except that we were very much in uh, in support of of Kennedy being very strong on this. Uh, And uh, I think we were very happy that we were able to play a role. Uh, uh, normally, Khrushchev's letters came in late at night, 10 or 11 Moscow time, and we had to translate them before we could transmit them. We had no hotline then where messages could be translated, you know, could be sent in Russian uh, directly from the Kremlin uh, to the White House. Uh, even then, of course, they would have to be translated for uh, the president. Uh, but, uh, so... We did work as fast as we could. There was a kind of detour in your career with Soviet affairs because after that couple of years in Moscow, you spent what 
eight years involved with Africa. Which, which... I spent seven years in Africa, and it was at my own uh, uh, request. I uh, I had asked after Moscow. You know, we had more Soviet specialists than we could use uh, in Moscow. At that time, we had only one post. Later, we had a consulate general in uh, what was in Leningrad, uh, but. Uh, you know, our embassy was not one of our bi- biggest embassies, uh, so uh, you couldn't spend your whole career. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the State Department encouraged you to broaden your thing. So I asked for either Latin America or Africa and was given Africa. First, Ghana, because the ambassador there had been concerned with Kwame Nkrumah's growing uh, involvement with the Soviet Union and uh, and to a lesser degree China, and it asked for Soviet specialists to come and, in effect, watch what they were doing. So, and I must say, my family, when I talk to my children now, they were very young then. That was one of the happiest times of their lives. Our time in Ghana, we we grew to love Africa, and and Africans, and particularly the Ghanaians, who are just wonderful people. Uh, And so after my tour there, which had been pretty successful, and frankly, I'm proud of one of my assessments. Uh, I uh, One of my – after a few months of watching what the Soviets were doing and the interaction, I did send a message saying that, in my opinion, the exposure uh, to communism would serve as an inoculation, not as a source of infection. Uh, because one of our worries then was that, you know, the communists were going to sort of take over the decolonized uh, Africa. Uh, you, you could see that this was just not going to happen uh, for a whole lot of reasons, some of them cultural, by the way, and not, not all ideological. Um, but um, uh, the fact is that, that we enjoyed Africa. So I told the State Department, if, if you can get me another good African post— uh, I'll be happy to stay in Africa. They were pressing me uh, to stay, and they gave me Zanzibar. Now, Zanzibar was a consulate, and it's sort of like a naval officer getting a first ship command. Uh, you you have your own post, and that way, professionally, you can demonstrate whether you can lead a post or not. And and we had a USIA library. We had an aid project. Uh, we had a communist-leaning regime that had been revolutionary, uh, but were really just a bunch of hoodlums, um, and uh, in a place of some strategic importance, because there was still the fear that contagion from Zanzibar could spread, you know, throughout East Africa. Um, So this was a fascinating post. So those seven years in Africa uh, are years that uh, I still treasure, both professionally, personally, and intellectually. In 1971, um, you returned to Soviet duties uh, as director of Soviet affairs at the at the State Department. That's the Nixon administration. Um, what were your impressions uh, in coming back to Washington under that kind of uh, leadership? For me, it was a a very welcome uh, jump. Uh, I think. Uh, at that time, my immediate boss, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for European Affairs, uh, had been my boss in Moscow. And my work there, uh, not only during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but in other respects, had so impressed him that uh, the, he, he gave me this opportunity. But that uh, that 
put me in the position as we prepared for the Nixon summits in 72, 73, 74. Uh, Kissinger was doing all the things like arms control and so on, but we were negotiating all the bilateral stuff, and we were negotiating a lot of different agreements at that time to try to take uh, much of the danger and sting out of the relationship. Your first... um Summit conference was in Moscow in 1972 with Nixon and Brezhnev. What did it feel like to be in on one of those the first time? Well, (laughs) of course, it was very interesting because we – there had not been – uh, a summit for a very long time. But the last one was, Vien- uh, was Vienna, and, the last one? Uh, and we went into it with a certain number of agreed things, but without the final agreement in what became the ABM Treaty and the, uh, and the first uh, SALT agreement, uh, Strategic Arms Agreement, um, we had negotiated the better part of a, of a communique covering a lot of things, uh, but uh, a lot of the negotiations had not been completed, so uh, we continued to negotiate after we came. I was the note taker in the first meeting, and my first impression, frankly, was one of what shall I say, almost embarrassment, because we were standing. Uh, with Nixon on in front of a door, and the idea was this was in this very ornate uh, hall in the Kremlin. He would enter from one end with his delegation. Brezhnev would enter from the other end. They would uh, uh, simultaneously, and they would meet in the middle and shake hands before the television cameras. And I, I'm standing very close to him, and I notice that sweat is forming on his upper lip. And I thought, good heavens, the president of the United States nervous about meeting these clowns? <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, the meeting then went, and that was the time where they still had uh, supposedly the triumvirate. So all three of them, uh, uh, Brezhnev and his uh, two senior colleagues, uh, each spoke to some degree, but Brezhnev most of the time. No, as uh, the, still a fairly junior officer in the State Department, it was, it was, uh, I would say, exhilarating to observe those meetings and even to have played a part since we had written a good many of the talking points going in. You um, were deputy chief of mission in Moscow from 1975 to 79. Can you compare that? These are the late Brezhnev years. It's post-Helsinki agreement. How did that compare with your earlier experience in Moscow? Well, it was a a case where, you know, the Soviet Union was somewhat more open than it had been. Uh, But at the same time, there were still very concerted efforts to limit our contact with Soviet citizens uh, and uh, and even with most Soviet officials who were not those specifically designated to deal with us. On the other hand, you could travel to the capital of each of the Union republics. Much of the country was closed, uh, but uh, there, there was enough open to keep you busy traveling. 
Uh, whether I, at whatever position I had, I tried to travel as much as I could, uh, recognizing that this is not just Russia, this is not just Moscow, this is not just the Soviet leadership, this is a huge empire, uh, which very varied reactions in many places, and the more you can see of it and understand of it, the better you're going to understand what's happening in the, in the country. Uh, but also, of course, at that time, I had the responsibility of managing the embassy. That is the uh, the main duty of the of the deputy, uh, the ambassador has to be freed to to do all of the things that only ambassadors can do. Uh, so uh, much of the actual em- embassy management uh, rested on my shoulders. But here again, I it, with all of the constraints uh, that the KGB put upon us, and the fact that living conditions were not ideal, um, I always found living in Moscow uh, uh, exhilarating uh, in the sense that uh, I felt that what we were trying to do and understand what was going on and to ultimately influence what was going on uh, was so important. And also you found so many Soviets who seem you know, to be approachable, understandable. And even if the KGB cut off contact after a, a meeting or two, uh, nevertheless, you had the feeling that uh, that your presence there was appreciated and, and, and even was necessary if they were ever going to be able to open up to the outside world. So I would say, yes, there were many, many problems that we face. We had detente, but detente was unraveling. And they were still trying to limit Western influence in the media and in the cultural area, though we did have a very active cultural program. And most important, we had uh, numbers of scholars who were were studying. Uh, It was not like it had been under Stalin, where uh, after World War II, under Stalin, there were no people studying in their institution. So we had a gathering American colony, so to speak, uh, and which tended to be fairly close-knit simply because we were limited in what we could do um, with the Soviets. Nevertheless, my wife and I tried to make our residence in a social sense, one that was Russian-speaking and one that Soviets would always feel uh, or would come to feel comfortable coming to uh, in a cultural sense. And uh, I think that did work. And and. So those years, I think, were, were very important to us personally, but also in, in understanding the problems of probably a unique embassy and, uh, and, and how to operate under the environment that we were in. Let's take a break here for some music. Oh. 
That was music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, retired diplomat Jack Matlock. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Jack, your first ambassadorial appointment was in Czechoslovakia. Um, I know it happened a number of times that U.S. diplomats served in Prague before being ambassador in Moscow. Why was that? Well, I suppose uh, they considered uh, Prague, uh, one thing, a Slavic-speaking country and also at that time communist. And um, it was a smaller embassy, obviously, uh, than Moscow. So often it would be a natural one uh, for someone who would be a candidate for Moscow to be, you might say, uh, you know, tried out <laughs> so far as the State Department was concerned. Did you see anything interesting, given your long experience in the Soviet Union, you would have been able to observe how the Czechs and Slovaks, and especially in their leadership, responded or didn't respond to what was happening in the Soviet Union? At that time, uh, that was from 81 to 83, the whole existence of that particular regime depended upon Moscow. They had been put in place after the Prague Spring in 68, and um, clearly they could make no decisions on big issues that weren't approved in Moscow. That meant that uh, actually they were more rigid in many ways, and, and also I would have to say, I hate to use the word, more stupid in dealing with us. Uh, than, say, in, in the Soviet Union. Now, for example, uh, when I was in charge of our embassy in 1981 in Moscow, you know, I was allowed to do a five-minute uh, presentation on national television on July 4th, our national day. And that was traditional. The ambassador or the charge could do that, and there was no attempt to censor my speech in any way. Now, when I was in Czechoslovakia, around VE Day in early May, uh, I would make a point on the weekend to make a tour of those towns and villages in western Bohemia that had been liberated by American forces in World War II. And I had a very anodyne speech uh, about our you know, uh, victory in the war, which complimented the Red Army for its contribution to it, and so on, completely non-political. And yet, a lot of these uh, places, and we would announce on the Voice of America and Radio for Europe where I would be and when. And in most of these towns, crowds would gather, and then in some of them, an official would come up and say, you're not allowed to speak. Uh, and uh, in others... Uh, I remember in one uh, town, the whole square was crowded with people, and they brought in loudspeakers so people couldn't hear what I was saying. Well, the reason this was stupid is that I had pre-recorded everything that I was going to say, sent it to the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe. As soon as they said I couldn't do it, and they did the same thing in Pilsen, uh, that simply forbade me from making any statement, we put it on VOA. 
So two million people heard it rather than a few hundred. And it made, you know, implicitly made their government look bad. Many Czechs would come up to say, I'm so ashamed. These stupid people, you know, what do they think they're doing? But, you know, as I said, it was uh, it was as if you were a major league player in the minor leagues, in a sense, if you were carrying out sort of Cold War <laughs> uh, types of operations. Uh, but you did have the feeling that, you know, the great mass of people, Czechs and Slovaks, were very much with you. And uh, that, of course, was great. And, and of course, the friends that you were allowed to make or, 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 or to maintain were real friends. And, and uh, Prague is a wonderful city, as we, we know now. And even in communist times, it was great living there. I happened to be in Czechoslovakia in 1982 when Brezhnev died. I was sitting in the archive um, the morning that the news came through and it was sort of whispered from one person to the next. Um, as ambassador, did you sense any change in what the Czech leader, Czech and Slovak leadership was, was thinking or were, did they get very nervous about, well, we don't know what's next? It's hard to tell. Hard to tell. They would not have conveyed that to me. But they may well have. <laughs> you came back to Washington when the um, Soviets shot down um, KAL-007, the Korean airliner, and became a member of the National Security Council and special advisor to President Reagan. Reagan is somewhat controversial. You know, what was his role, if any, in the downfall of the Soviet Union? What was it like working for him? I've never had a better job. Reagan was a person who knew that he didn't know everything, was comfortable with that, and if it was important, he wanted to learn. I've worked for a number of presidents, and I'll tell you that among the ones I've known, he's unique in that respect. He was a voracious reader. Uh, we never had to limit the, the, the length of things we sent to him, uh, but what he was interested in was not the minutia of arms control, how many warheads you have and that sort of thing, but how do I get to the Soviet leaders? How do I deal with them? And let's get rid of these nuclear weapons. For him, that was a fundamental moral issue. I think when he was told that we had no defense and our only reaction to a Soviet attack would be to retaliate, I think he knew he couldn't do it. He said, you mean I've got to kill millions of innocent people? No, that's not acceptable. So, you know, he, he came in, though, in his first campaign, he, they downpedaled it, thinking that it would be misunderstood by the public. Uh, he was a nuclear abolitionist to begin with. And in dealing with the Soviet Union, much as he disliked communism, and of course that's clear, one thing, he did not demonize the Soviet leaders. It was another thing about Reagan. People used to say, oh, he's only an actor. I'll tell you, for diplomacy, the training an actor has to put yourself in another person's shoes, to understand in order to act the person, how that person is coming from, is invaluable. Most American politicians don't have that. Most Americans tend to think other people, you know, more or less think as we do, and you often misunderstand either what we say or what they are saying. 
you just put it in a different cultural context. Now, Reagan was very conscious of this. And I would say another thing. As a politician, he had empathy, not sympathy, but empathy for other politicians. And at times he would tell us, well, for example, on human rights, he would say, look, we got to stop beating him over the head, meaning Gorbachev on human rights. If we do it publicly, he, he can't back down. He can't look bad to his people. I mean, he understood these very fundamental human things, which you wonder why they are so often ignored. So for all of those reasons and the fact that near the top of the list of the attainments he wanted was to learn to live in peace with the Soviet Union and to get us on the road to eliminating nuclear weapons, I don't think he had any goal any higher than that. And in effect, I was brought on the staff and and told directly, we don't know how to do it. Come tell us. I mean, and and they meant it. (laughs) So that I would say, uh, well, the higher point in my professional life was working for Ronald Reagan. (laughs) When Gorbachev was selected leader of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, what was your first reaction? Uh, That, well, he was going to be different. We couldn't be sure in what way. Certainly he was younger. Uh, He had a reputation of being more pragmatic than some of the others. And my own attitude was that uh, we needed, in effect, to push the envelope, Uh, that, that maybe we finally have a Soviet leader who seems to want some changes, uh, and maybe we can get to him. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, uh, it would be better to begin to uh, to begin to stress the positive rather than the negative in, in, in the future of the relationship. Now, actually, this policy had started even before Gorbachev. In Reagan's January 16 speech, 1984, which was a little over a year before Gorbachev became general secretary, he he completely changed the rhetoric he had been using. He didn't change what his policies were, uh, but uh, this was a speech that I think uses the word cooperation uh, something like 20-odd times. Uh, but what we did in that speech, I say we, uh, I drafted it with the help of others, and he, he did the final draft and, and wrote some of the most effective parts, that is Reagan. But nevertheless, what we did was to cast all of our problems in a mutual and cooperative way. We didn't say, you got to improve human rights. We said we must cooperate to ensure the respect for human rights. We must cooperate to reduce arms. We must cooperate to reduce violence in third areas. We must cooperate to build a better working relationship. And that was the phrase I I devised to say, bring down the Iron Curtain. That's maybe provocative, but let's have a better working relationship. And then we define it by more access to the media on both sides. Well, they had access to ours, but we'll say on both sides and uh, and uh, and uh, come out ahead. Uh, more visitors and so on. So we had begun to as I said, to stress the positive, uh, even before they paid attention to it. Now, uh, Gromyko, at that time the foreign minister, totally dismissed this speech. But 
we kept the policy increasingly. Uh, this was the basis of it. And we, this was all eventually, uh, you might say, summarized in what we called a four-part agenda, reducing arms uh, to the lowest possible levels, particularly the most dangerous ones, the nuclear, uh, withdrawing support for, for conflict in third countries. Uh, uh, the proposal was that we would both withdraw support and help the parties make peace. And Reagan also, in that speech made a significant statement. He said, we don't blame the Soviet Union for the problems. Before implicitly we had, he said, our problem is they have militarized them. We need to demilitarize them and then cooperate to help the parties that created the problem solve it. Now, that, that you see, is simply a different way of couching it, and it's couching in a way which is no longer zero-sum. And then the third part of the agenda was improve respect for human rights, and we made that reciprocal, and improve a working relationship, bring down the Iron Curtain, the sotto voce. Uh, and by 87, this was the formal structure of the agenda for our negotiations. Now, in 1986, you made a speech, public speech in Latvia to an, an audience um, saying the United States did not recognize the inclusion of the Baltic states in the Soviet Union. That had long been policy, but to state it so openly, what were you trying to accomplish with that? Well, uh, the, the whole purpose of that speech was to convey to the Soviet people, including particularly those in the Baltic countries uh, where uh, we were holding the meeting, uh, that uh, uh, what the problems were. And uh, uh, it was particularly important to convey to the people in Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania our non-recognition policy. This had been our policy all along, but most people didn't know it. And I had my first trip to uh, uh, the Baltic when I was a junior diplomat. I found in talking to people, they would always come up and try to find a way. You know, we're not Russians. And uh, you, you you may think, you know, I say, oh, we understand you're not Russians. And finally, I would always say, you know, my country doesn't recognize that you're legally part of the Soviet Union. Really? Yes, really. Then you do understand. So, I, you know, to get this across, I thought was uh, very important. I actually was able to begin that talk in Latvian, uh, and then later I made that statement in Russian. And this actually did have, we're told later, a real catalyzing effect uh, on the independence movements in, in, in Latvia. Um, but this was one of our moves when we were invited that we thought it important to take advantage of the opportunity to come and explain our policies uh, on Soviet television because we had been assured, and this was another test, another push of the envelope at that time, uh, a test of how far one could go. We had been assured that if we will come and come to Latvia, well, before, many people said, oh, you don't recognize a part of the Soviet Union. You can't hold a meeting there. And we'll say, well, we don't recognize that part of the Soviet Union, but it's really stupid to cut us off from contact with the people there. And uh, we, don't, we don't imply any recognition by going there. They occupy the country. They control it. We'll go. But we'll make clear what our position is. So partly this was a test. How, will they put it on TV? They did. 
So this is one of the steps we began to see, okay, you know, we're getting somewhere in getting the media open. One other thing that happened about the same time that would have seemed to be would seem to have been a step backward, uh, not something that the U.S. initiated, and that was the arrest of Nick Daniloff um, from U.S. News and World Report. And you played hardball, um, expelling Soviet diplomats from the Washington embassy, and uh, the Soviets responded. Um, I, I don't think they expelled as many people, but what were you trying to accomplish with that? That's a very complicated story and probably longer than we have to uh, discuss. Basically, uh, the FBI arrested an employee of the U.N. Secretariat who did not have diplomatic immunity. He was an employee of the Secretariat, and his work for the Secretariat would be immune, but not his work outside. And he had recruited, uh, uh, I think, a student uh, and had... uh, uh, now, the student, it turned out, was became an informer of the FBI, so they monitored the whole thing. Uh, and they finally, when the student had delivered in his hand a package with classified material, they swooped down, arrested uh, uh, the Soviet uh, intelligence agent. Well, you know, for the FBI and uh, and the Justice Department— we had to do something to deter the Soviet use of the U.N. as a base. Now, they could put spies, and they did, in their own delegation. They're totally immune. You catch them, you expel them. But to have spies working, getting their salary from the U.N., and we had – there were no international organizations in Moscow. Um, And so there was nothing reciprocal here. So we wanted to send a message, look, we're going to put the guy in jail. Uh, and, and just knock off using the U.N. as a cover. Um, and so as a matter of principle, that was very important. Now, my proposal, I was on the NSC, was when they arrested Daniloff, which was predictable. We had no spies in the Soviet Union then. Uh, we, we didn't have anybody they could legitimately arrest for espionage. Uh, our moles... Uh, and the CIA and FBI had betrayed every spy we had. Uh, that's a fact. Uh, we didn't learn this until a few years later. But uh, we had no agents. Uh, so they pick up a, a journalist, uh, Nick Danilov, who was not a spy. But they had done this before. When we arrested people, unless we just expel them, well, they would find some American and trump up some charge. My recommendation was that we simply notify them that as long as Danloff is held, they will lose two positions at their mission in New York, and though, and we will we will specify the people, and they cannot be replaced. And every and next week it'll be two more. In other words, there's a time bomb there, and what we obviously would be would be removing. Uh, KGB or GRU officers uh, uh, from their mission and not letting them replace them, which meant that if they replaced them, they would have to replace somebody else. Uh, it creates bureaucratic problems at home. Uh, and I said, you know, I think that will work. Then uh, obviously the president sends Gorbachev a message saying that uh, uh, Daniloff doesn't work for it. But the State Department did not approve that approach. And uh, Schultz finally came to the president and said he wanted to work it out with Soviet Foreign Minister Shevardnadze. Well, nothing particularly wrong with that, except that once you start a negotiation over the issue, 
they are going to insist upon absolute symmetry. And we finally, at the end of a number of negotiations, uh, got Danilov released, and uh, then they agreed that their spy would uh, would plead nolo contendere, that is, uh, uh, that he would be expelled. Uh, and furthermore, then we got the release of uh, Yuri Orlov, one of the political prisoners. So we said, well, we're trading the spy for the political prisoner. So it ended up in a trade, unfortunately. But what happened when Schultz persuaded uh, Reagan to let him do the negotiation, he said, once we get Danilov out, throw out as many as you want. Well, the FBI – and I said at the time, look, that's going to be a catastrophe because if we do that, they'll retaliate against our embassy. And we have so many fewer people than they do. So then we sent a private message that if there was any retaliation on our embassy, that we would massively retaliate and would require parity of numbers. Uh, and I think they didn't really believe us. Uh, and uh, the fact is that when they finally negotiated this end, this exchange in effect, uh, we threw out uh, – I think every, everybody, the FBI wanted to throw out, which is everybody on their list, from the UN mission. We didn't touch their embassy or their consulate in San Francisco, which were the true counterparts. You see, we had no counterpart in the Soviet mm -hmm. Union of, of their UN mission. Uh, so uh, – and uh, that's when – at that point, they reacted by taking away our uh, local employees. Now, that too was predictable. Uh, in fact, for over a year, I had been pressing the State Department to reduce the number – to reduce our dependence, not totally get rid of them, but reduce our dependence on Soviet employees by training usually young Americans who were interested in Russian to come and do some of these uh, uh, maintenance jobs. Uh, and they were slow doing it. But And we were not prepared, and so our embassy took a real hit. So, But uh, that was what happened. And, and actually, you know, I still think my first plan would have worked because Gorbachev wanted the meeting that took place in Reykjavik, and there's no way the president was going to go to Reykjavik while, uh, while Danilov uh, uh, was being held. So we would have gotten Danilov out and with much less damage on both sides, but also leaving a lot of Soviet <laughs> spies in the U.S. We're getting close to running out of time, but uh, I need—I want to ask <laughs> one question about your time as ambassador, because you've written more about that, and people yeah. out there need to, uh, yes. if they're interested, to read the books. But the, the one question I, I think that would be most interesting, you were there from 1987 to 91. When you left, the Soviet Union was still there. When and why did it occur to you that the Soviet Union might not last? I sent my first message alerting Washington to the possibility of a Soviet um, disintegration uh, in July 1990, that is 18 months before it happened. And what convinced me at that time, of course, we had seen the rising nationalism, the economic problems that were developing, uh, the political difficulties, the fact that the Communist Party was losing uh, total control, uh, that Gorbachev's reforms uh, so far had, had avoided using force. Uh, and But what really convinced me was that Russian opinion 
those of the Russian Republic leaders, were talking increasingly about the rest of the Soviet Union as a burden and how Russia needed to free itself of that burden. Uh, There were multiple reasons for this attitude, but basically they were looking at the Soviet Union as a communist empire, not as a Russian empire, and also that an empire would not be something Russia wanted or or could have. So uh, it was clear to me if the leaders many of them now elected, of the Russian Federation did not think it important to keep the Soviet Union, it was probably not going to last because the leaders in most of the other republics didn't want it either. So uh, that's, uh, that's when I first sent the message. And then, but we didn't want it to happen. And we also didn't want a lot of public talk about this. Because if 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 there had leaked that the CIA was predicting the collapse or the embassy was predicting, and I wasn't predicting, I was saying, let's plan for this contingency. It could happen. But if this had leaked, everybody would assumed we wanted it and we were trying to make it happen, neither of which was true. Because uh, when Bush came to shove in, in 91, President Bush, the first President Bush, did everything he could to support Gorbachev in getting a democratic union treaty without the three Baltic countries. We were always in favor of their independence. But the other 12, we preferred to, uh, if they would stay in the Soviet Union. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Jack Matlock, writer, teacher, and retired U.S. diplomat. Jack? Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Thank you. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us, and we close with more music chosen by our guest. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.